Good morning. It's great to be with you to worship Christ this morning. Let's turn to the Word of God together, either in your Bibles or in your bulletins. We're going to read from Hebrews chapter 11. We read uh, verses 1 through 16 last week. We'll pick it up at verse 17 this week and read to the end. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in fact was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of, his son, each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. And they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destituted, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hebrews 11, from which we just read, is one of the most famous chapters in all the Bible. It's, it's kind of a long list of people and events, great heroes of the faith. And it's a, it's a pretty well-known chapter. It's one you might have encountered before. It's almost overwhelming to read through the whole thing. 
as you go through the whole, if you were to read straight through the whole chapter, you, you feel constantly as if you need to dwell on it a while. You need to stop and pause and consider each story and, and remember the events of each story and how does it, how does it uh, support what the, what the author of Hebrews is, is saying. You could preach dozens of sermons from just this one chapter, but today I'll have to settle for preaching just one. I want to begin by pointing out the utter ridiculousness of the stories that are represented here. All of them. All of the stories. Maybe we lose sight of it because maybe we've heard some of them before. But, I think, but just think for a moment about how crazy, completely crazy, all of these stories are. As an example, consider just one of them, the story of Jericho. The story of Jericho. The, the people of God are finally, after years of waiting, entering the land of blessing and promise. They've, they've gone out of Egypt, the land of slavery and exile. They're entering the land of Canaan, the land of blessing and promise. And their first stop is to conquer the city of Jericho, a, mat- a massive fortress city that dominated the entire region. And this is where it gets bizarre. How did they conquer Jericho? By walking in circles and shouting at the city. I mean, don't lose sight of the fact that that's crazy. Actually, it's more than crazy. It's worse than that. It's foolish. It's stupid. I mean, I, I have not conquered many cities in my lifetime. So maybe my perspective on this is fairly limited. But even with my limited city-conquering experience, I'm pretty confident that this is a poor tactic. You know, swords and, and spears really are more effective than pacing and shouting. So why did God make fools of them like that? I mean, we know the end of the story, so we know that it worked. We know that the walls came tumbling down, right? As the song says. But as they were walking in circles, and even as they shouted at the top of their lungs, they didn't know the end of the story. They had not yet seen the walls falling down and the city conquered. The only thing that they knew was that they looked silly walking in circles around a city and shouting. They looked silly for following God. Maybe they could hear the jeers of the people of Jericho as they watched their Monty Python-like attack. Faith often looks foolish. How did they have the faith to follow God even when God was making them look foolish? And multiply that times every story in Hebrews chapter 11. He... Here were all of these people who were willing to go so far out on a limb as they followed God. How were they able to do that? The ridiculousness of all of these things should jump off the page at us. And as we read, we should know, we should realize this. If we're going to follow God, then you'd better bet that he will call us to do something unexpected and uncomfortable. So we have some things to learn from the examples that we find in this chapter. And that's, that's kind of the the first layer of the onion, but there's a second layer to all of these stories, a second factor that makes them all very surprising. Not only were all these people embarrassed because they looked foolish as they they did what God commanded them to, but also, in nearly every case, they stared death right in the face. And in the midst of extreme threat, all of these faith heroes chose faith over life. Look at verse, uh, verse 17, the first one and following. This is especially visible in the experience of Abraham and his wife Sarah. They were promised a special son, one through whom blessing would come to the entire world. 
And for decades, they waited for God to fulfill that promise. Finally, God brought life out of death. From the dead womb of Sarah in her old age, the son miraculously came. And then as if to prove a point, God made Abraham and Sarah go through the entire thing again. He told Abraham to do the unthinkable, to sacrifice the son of promise. Faced with a kind of death that is far more gut-wrenching than anyone would ever expect to endure, Abraham acted in faith, and the writer of Hebrews says that there is a very real sense in which Abraham received his son back from the dead for the second time, really, as if resurrected. And Abraham was able to do that because he was looking ahead to something beyond death, the text says, something that even death itself could not stop. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph demonstrate the same faith as their father and grandfather and great-grandfather Abraham. Isaac, Jacob pronounced blessings on descendants that he knew would far outlive his own, their own lives. And when Joseph told the people of Israel to take his bones out of Egypt, it was a statement of faith. The people of God would not live in the land of slavery and exile forever. Joseph believed that they would be rescued and restored to the land of blessing and promise, even if that salvation did not take place in his own lifetime. This chapter confronts us again and again and again with the truth that without faith, it is impossible to do any of these things. Everything listed in this chapter is unnatural. It's not the way anyone would react. It's not the thing anyone would choose apart from faith. How is it possible to face lions Fire, war. Just look at the the list there beginning in verse 33. Just glance at it. To face mocking and flogging, being homeless in exile and wearing chains of imprisonment. How is it possible to be killed by swords and rocks and saws? Being destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. What in the world would cause someone to endure things like that? Well, the real key, and, and maybe the, whole, the key to the whole chapter, Hebrews 11, is there found at the end in verses 39 and 40. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better that they were all looking forward to. They did not see the promise. None of them, it says in verse 39, none of them saw the promise. They did not receive the thing that, they, that God had promised them. But they saw, they looked forward in time and they saw something better than what they had, than what they experienced. In each case, the people of faith are looking ahead to something beyond death, something that transcends death, that the grave itself cannot prevent. And they believed that this goodness from beyond the grave would actually, in the end, make death itself look foolish. In our world of death, in our world of suffering, that kind of hope, what we read about in this chapter, is always shocking. Nearly everything in our experience tells us that the grave is final. And we are always taught to believe that you only live once, so our goal should be to fit everything in now. Whatever it is that you want to do, whatever it is that you want to be, you get one shot to do it, go do it. Do it now, because this is all you get. But the people of Hebrews 11 are of one mind and of one voice. They all testify to the world. Death is not the end. There is something beyond it, 
something that we can very much look forward to. There's no need to try to fit it all in now because the reality is that the very best comes later. That's the testimony of the people described in Hebrews 11. What prevents us from having faith like theirs? What kinds of things get in the way from us being like them? Well, very interestingly, we actually see in this text itself, a lot of the obstacles that they face sound very familiar to us. So look at verse 19, for example. The first one we've already mentioned, it's death. Experiencing death's sour taste leaves scars on our, on our souls and steals our hope. Death is our greatest enemy, and it's the greatest obstacle to our faith. Look at verse 23. And you see it's mentioned fear. What, what do you fear? Everyone has a worst case scenario for their lives. And the closer our lives look to that worst case scenario, the more we panic and the harder faith becomes. Verses 24 and 25. Ease and comfort. We can always think of a dozen things that seem easier than walking by faith. We often find those alternatives to faith to actually be an illusion. But in the moment, they're awfully attractive. They sound a lot better than walking by faith. Verse 29 and and elsewhere in the chapter, we see nature mentioned. Maybe we have a fear of the power of nature. Or maybe we just find the idea of the supernatural, something beyond what is natural, nature, to be a stretch. But sometimes our understanding of nature can undermine our faith. In verse 30, and in, uh, in the verses 33 and following, we see power as an obstacle to faith. Maybe we find physical, intellectual, emotional, or national strength to be more attractive than walking by faith. Or in verse 34, the opposite of that, weakness is mentioned. Maybe we find Weakness to be not nearly so compelling as power. Verse 33 mentions justice. One of the common reasons that people abandon their faith is because they can't explain injustice. We look at the world, we see how things are, and we say to our faith, that's not good enough. That does not explain what I see. It's interesting that so many of the things that are obstacles for us we see right here in the chapter. I'll add a couple things to the list. Expectations. We often have very, very, very strong feelings about how things are supposed to go in our lives. It's, not, it's supposed to be like this, not like that. And we find ourselves being shattered or grieved or angry when our lives don't go how we, we meant them to, how we want them to. And then sometimes we look at people who live by faith and the outcomes of their lives are not exactly what we would, would hope for naturally. If you scan again just verses 35 to 38, just scan those for a moment and realize that wouldn't exactly make a great recruitment poster. And there's, I mean, you know, if you said Uncle Sam wants you, and then you listed those things, I don't think you get a lot of sign-ups. As we look at the list of things that people of old were up against, it should, I think it should reassure us. Because their obstacles were, were very often the same as ours. This struggle for faith 
is timeless and it transcends place and culture. And if faith was possible for them despite these threats, then it's possible for us too. And that leads us to the main question of the day. The main question that we're going to look at from Hebrews 11. How can we have that faith? How did the people of old see something better as we read in verse 40? And how can we do the same? How can we have that faith? That's our main question of the day. Before we get to that question, let me take a moment to point out one other thing. If you're not a Christian, I think that this might be of particular interest to you. Sometimes we hear in our culture phrases like people of faith to describe as sort of a collective term people of all different religions. And so, you know, Christians, Buddhists, Muslims, anyone who is, is religious in any sense, we hear them described in this sort of big bucket term, people of faith. But I think it's worth pointing out that the kind of faith that's described here in Hebrews 11 is actually something unique to Christianity. Many other religions deny the goodness or even the reality of the body, of pain, of suffering. They teach that danger and pain and suffering are illusions, that they're not ultimately real. And, we, and then they teach us various ways in which we can be freed from the illusion of pain and suffering. In contrast, Christianity has always affirmed the reality and the goodness of the body. God created us to be made of both body and soul. Pain and suffering are real and meaningful, and they come from the brokenness of a cursed world. As one writer put it, Hebrews 11 offers a long catalog of people who faced terrifying situations, and in many cases were persecuted to within an inch of their lives, if not beyond which raises some questions. Why should it be like this? What is wrong? Why, if God was at work in the lives of Gideon, Barak, Samson, and the rest, and those who were stoned and sawn in two and so on, why, if God was calling them and was with them, why did they have to go through all of that? The writer responds, it's important to begin by saying that there's never a full or ultimately correct answer to the question, why, in such circumstances. If you could analyze the situation in each case and explain why, you would make things seem not so bad. But Christianity never does that. Part of the point, even here in Hebrews chapter 11, part of the point is that they were bad. They were very bad for those involved. You can't somehow draw the sting of torture and murder by locating them loftily on some scale of higher purpose. But having said that, we come to the point that the writer is making, here in particular in his long list of heroes and heroines in the faith. He is now drawing a conclusion from their experience, similar to the ones that he had drawn again and again from the Old Testament throughout the book of Hebrews. The fact that they suffered such things and that they demonstrated that the world was not worthy of them was a sign both that they believed God was making a new world in which everything would be better and the fact that they believed this is, is a sign that, their, that this belief was in fact true. They were out of tune with their times because they were living by faith in God's future world while society all around them was living as though the present world was all that there ever was or would be. And God was giving them strength like that. To, to live like that, thus proving the truth of their claim. They were, in their own lives and sufferings, living beacons of hope and pointers to the fact 
that the God who had made the world intends to remake it and that they were the advanced guard of that great moment. Especially if you're non, not a Christian, there's a distinction here between faith and the faiths uh, that I think is important. But let's get back to our main question. How can we have faith like the people described in Hebrews 11? How did they see something better than what they saw with their eyes? And how can we do the same? I'll describe three ways in which I think that kind of faith is possible. Here's number one. Faith comes by seeing God's patterns. Faith comes by seeing God's patterns. What's the point of this whole chapter? What's the point of repeating example after example after example? What's the point of the entire book of Hebrews for that matter? Where throughout the entire letter, the author is hammering home the same point over and over again. That since the beginning, the events of history are not random. But rather they're pointing in a direction. God has been up to something. And if we see the patterns of his work, we can see what he's doing. So how can we have the kind of faith that we read about in this chapter? We need to diligently learn about the history of God's work. And we need to carefully watch for the patterns, the fingerprints of his, of his work. I, I think that's especially true in, in Hebrews 11 or anywhere in the Bible where we read about things that seem strange or out of place to us. What is, when the pattern that emerges seems otherworldly, that might be because it is. As one writer put it, the world would no doubt look and see some apparently very odd people living what appeared to be an extreme form of a countercultural lifestyle. From God's point of view, these people were the beginning of the new world. How are they described in verse 38? It says that the world was not worthy of them. They're following a new pattern, loving and thinking and pursuing different things than we would expect. They looked back at the history of God's work and they saw what he had done in the past. They heard and they believed his promises and in faith they chose to leave behind the patterns of that fractured, fallen world and follow instead the patterns of the perfected world to come. And in this chapter, God is calling us to be like them, to follow after their example. Our hope is the same as theirs and the promises of God are the same for us. If we learn and follow his pattern, then we too will begin to think and to see beyond the grave. That's the first way that we can have this kind of faith, is to read about the history of the history of God's people and his word, to ponder the patterns you see there, and to emulate them in your own life. The second way is that faith comes by experiencing failure. Faith comes by experiencing failure. This one seems probably probably seems very counterintuitive. Aren't our own sins and failures evidence of a lack of faith? Yeah, that's, that's probably true, actually. Our lives are strewn with examples of our own unbelief. In fact, sometimes if we look back at our lives, we might see more unbelief in our own personal history than we see belief. But never forget this. Our stories, the stories of our lives, are not about us. They're about something bigger than us. Let me explain it this way. Who is the main character in Shakespeare's play, Macbeth. 
Well, the obvious answer would be Macbeth, right? I mean, after all, the play is named after him. How would you respond if someone came to you and, and told you that the main character in Macbeth was actually Donald Bain, who appears in a few scenes and has a few lines? What if they came to you and said, actually, Macbeth is about Donald Bain? I suspect if somebody told you that, you wouldn't believe them. You might even point out that the whole, the whole play is titled Macbeth, not Shakespeare's Donald Bain. Donald Bain is a secondary character, and he's written into the play only to serve the story of the central figure, which is, of course, Macbeth himself. To us, our story seems like the most important story in the world because it's the one that we experience and see and think about the most. And if we're honest, it's the one that we love the most. But the reality is we are Donald Bane. God created the universe to write a much bigger story than ours. In his story, we are not at the center of the stage. We're off to the side. What's the story God's telling? This is the story of the glory of his son who became a man and died and was resurrected. And in doing all of that, he became the first fruits of a new humanity that has shaken off the brutal brokenness of the world as it is now. And that story arc permeates everything he does. It's a resurrection story more than anything else. He is the God who brings light into darkness, turns pain into healing, and finds what is lost. And for those of us who follow him in faith, God bends our lives until we take that same shape, the, same, the shape of resurrection. And by that, I don't just simply mean life after death. Resur- resurrection as God, the shape of God's story is so much more than just when you die, you continue. Resurrection is something, by God's grace, that happens over and over in little things in our lives, beginning even now. God demonstrates his resurrection power and his love for his people by turning our greatest failures into things that build us up and not tear us down. Things that we would look back and say, there's nothing good that could possibly come out of that. And then God uses even even the things that make us feel most ashamed and he uses them to change us and to recreate us. You know that God has been at work when you can say something like this, I wouldn't wish that on anyone, but I wouldn't trade that for anything. You know that he's been at work when you can look back at your life and see, I thought I was only being broken in that moment, but now I can look back and say, I was being broken, but I was also being transformed. Remember what the Apostle Paul, what, what God told the Apostle Paul, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And the same is true of us. Those of us who walk in faith are even now being recreated into a new humanity, one that looks more and more like the perfect Son of God, our Savior. So think of it this way. If death can't stop him from doing that, then neither can our failures. The third, the third way that we can learn to have this kind of faith is faith comes by resting in God. Faith comes by resting in God. Realizing that our growth and our security is ultimately something he is doing in us, not something that we are doing for ourselves. According to Hebrews 11, this life is not you only live once. You, you do 
do everything you can to fit it all in now. In one sense, it's easier for us to see that than it was for the people of old, precisely because we have their testimony and their example. One pastor put it this way. Their faith shines all the more brightly when we realize that they carried on throughout their lives without seeing the story come to its conclusion. They didn't, in fact, receive the promise because it only came true in Jesus the Messiah and in the community that formed around him. In other words, the fellowship of those who follow Jesus. He establishes the true beginning. It's not merely the advanced signs of the world that God intends to make, the world that is to be, the world in which justice and right will triumph. And we will look back, as we look back at the great crowd who went through so much while looking forward to the reality we now enjoy. Are we not rebuked for sitting so lightly on our privileges and doing so little to show that we are the community in whom they were hoping for these things to finally come true? It's easy for us to see because of their example, and yet it's never easy. It's never been easy. Faith will never be easy. Faith always requires supernatural sight to see beyond what is visible to us here and now. So believe the promises of God because of the patterns of his work, because of the, te- the testimony and the example of others, because of the small resurrections that you've seen in your own life and the promise of the resurrection that is to come. But understand this and never forget. Ultimately, if you go all the way down to the very bottom of our faith, we trust in the person and the character of God himself. He has already demonstrated who he is, what he's like, and how he acts. And our hope, our only hope, is that the one who has promised is faithful. Our faith is in God's faithfulness. Our faith is in God's faithfulness. And thankfully, there is nothing more faith-worthy than that. Amen.